0: It's easy to underestimate things. We go on holiday and we underestimate the amount of money we're going to spend on the trip. We have a child and we underestimate how tired we're going to feel during those first few months. We underestimate the power of our words, both to hurt people, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you'll find Joshua, the first book of the so-called historical section of the Old Testament. And this morning, we want to look at three important areas that we tend to underestimate. Three things. These will serve as our outline as we see it played out in the life of Achan. First, underestimating our sin. Second, underestimating God's holiness. And third... Underestimating God's mercy, underestimating our sin, underestimating God's holiness, and then finally, underestimating God's mercy. Well, first, let's look at underestimating our sin. I mean, so far in the book of Joshua, we've seen the entrance into the promised land has been a breeze. A little marching, a little b- blowing of the trumpet, some shouting. I mean, piece of cake, the Israelites must have thought. Every city in Canaan would be theirs in no time. Because while Jericho was a massively fortified city with these walls that went towards the heavens, Ai was a little tiny city. It was a small fortress city about three kilometers from Jericho. wasn't much there. They probably had heard the crashing of the walls of Jericho and they were already packing their bags in fear. I mean, Ai is so small that Joshua in chapter 7 actually just sends 3,000 troops to Ai. He's like, there's not much there. I don't want to weary the troops, so let me just send a few in. And yet Joshua and the rest of the Israelites are stunned when the people of God are quickly defeated by Ai. I'm rather shocked, Joshua boldly asks in verse 7 of chapter 7. I'm not going to read through the whole two chapters. I'm going to refer back and forth throughout chapter 7 and 8. But look down at chapter 7, verse 7. Joshua boldly comes before God here and says, Did you mean to bring us into this place only to destroy us at the hands of the Amorites? I mean, little Ai just ran right over them. What's going on? Well, remember back in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, it was promised that God would bring them success on the condition of their faithfulness. They weren't to live however they wanted and kind of let go and let God do his thing while we go on and sin at the same time. No, there is human responsibility. But nor is the text saying that if you're faithful, you get health, wealth, and earthly prosperity. No, it's through the power of God that our obedience leads to success in the things of God. His promises being fulfilled here, meaning the land. Increased faith, increased holiness, increased godliness and mission. So as we said last week, it is all God. God's the one that took down Jericho. And yet the people of God still had to blow the trumpets. They still had to shout in obedience to God's commands. Now in Exodus twenty-three, twenty-two, God had promised that when Israel did his will, its enemies would be his enemies, but that defeat would be the price for covenant disloyalty. Verse 1 of chapter 7 tells us what happened. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now at this point, Joshua doesn't know what happened. And so he pleads with God, but God's answer is curt because his anger was upon the Israelites because of Achan's sin. Now the word Achan is the Hebrew word for trouble. Now parents, be careful how you name your kids. (laughs) If you name your kid trouble, you're probably asking for it. And Achan brought that not just to himself, but to his family and to all the Israelites, as we'll see. He was one of Israel's soldiers in the Battle of Jericho. He was on the right side of the conflict. But in disobedience, he took some of the loot, which was strictly prohib- prohibited by God. I mean, all the metal, metal articles would be taken to the treasury of the Lord as the first fruits of the conquest. But everything else was to be consumed by fire. And instead, Achan, this Israelite, took some of it for himself. And here was a man of privilege. He had a front row seat to some of the mightiest acts of all history. I mean, he was there when God piled up the Jordan River in a pile and had the people of God cross on dry ground during flood season. I mean, he's from Judah the most honored tribe. He's from the tribe set apart by God to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus. And yet, if you look down at verse 21 of chapter 7, we see the specific sin of Achan. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted to them and took them They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan kept back some of the devoted things. Did you notice the progression of sin in that last verse? It's really insightful for our own hearts, I think. I mean, what is it that led Achan to this disobedience? Well, there's six things I think we see in that short text. Let me go through those briefly. The first thing in Achan's progression of sin is that he sees it. He sets his eyes on the plunder. He saw the goods. He let his eyes linger on the prospect of acquiring them for himself. You have to be careful what you set your eyes on because it goes to the heart. Sin always begins in the mind, just as a work of art begins in the mind and then is externalized. So also does sin. Well, he sees it. The second thing that Achan does is he covets it. He was dissatisfied. Maybe he was tired from wearing the same clothes in the wilderness. Or maybe frustrated that he didn't have the riches that others had. And so he let his eyes linger and he began to yearn that that plunder, that that gold, that silver, that robe would be his. Now Babylonian material was regarded as extraordinary and fashionable. And this along with the gold And the silver suggests the sin of materialism on Achan's part. He saw a chance to be like the world in its outwardly visible success and fashion. So he wanted these objects. And so the third thing he does is he takes it. Achan looks at it. Achan covets it. And then we see that he takes it. I mean, his life on the outside looks good. He's of a good tribe. He's of the people of God. But he's a cheater. He's a thief. Without any regard for God, his family, or the community, Achan takes the restricted goods. And then, fourth, he hides it. He sees it, he covets it, he takes it, and then he hides it. This guy's not ignorant. I mean, he knows it's wrong. So, hidden in his home is perversion and corruption. Can this happen in our churches today? Someone who, on the outside, is a token child of God, and yet in the privacy of his or her life, there is corruption that only God sees. See, hiding something, is a good indication that you're probably in sin in that particular area. I mean, consider your own life this morning. Is there anything that you're hiding? Is there anything that you'd rather God or any of us not see? Is there anything that you've dug a hole in the ground to stuff so that in the privacy and the secrecy of your own life, You can dive into those things in hopes that no one will ever see. Let me take a couple of examples. I mean, would you be ashamed if right now I had secret access to your computer and I can put on the screens a detailed internet browser history for you? For everything that you searched on this past week, we would just go screen by screen in front of all of us. Or do you normally take great pains to erase your internet history and hide it? And would you be embarrassed for us to have access to the audio of your most insensitive conversation this past week? Maybe it was a conversation you had with your spouse or maybe with your boss or a coworker, And we just put it right through the speakers right now for all of us to hear. See, sin sets up shop in the privacy of our hearts and it begins eating away at our lives. And instead of dealing with it, we sweep it under the rug and hope that no one sees it. And like Achan, we hide it. But not only does Achan hide the goods, the fifth thing in this progression of sin is that he lies about it. He sees it, he covets it, he takes it, he hides it, and then he lies about it. Sin is sin leads to a destructive cycle that always, always, always involves lies. I mean, he has ample opportunity in our passage to confess and Joshua announces that there's sin in the midst and they're going to cast lots to see who committed the sin. And Achan just keeps quiet. Joshua asks, Is anyone committed a sin here? And Achan doesn't respond. And so finally, the sixth thing that we see is that Achan is caught in sin. He sees the plunder, he covets it, he takes it, he hides it, he lies about it, and now he's caught. I mean, there's some high drama in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 7. I mean, the atmosphere must have been tense. Huge numbers of non-war veterans, women, children, non-military males, probably turned out to see who was guilty. The way they figured out this was by casting lots. It was a primitive means of figuring out God's will. We don't do it anymore. Well, the high priest, the way they would do it is they'd take two rocks. One rock that symbolized yes and one rock that symbolized no. And they'd put it into a piece of pottery. And they'd shake the pottery. And whatever rock came out, that was the answer to God's will. So what they would do in this case is they would take first the 12 tribes of Israel. They would divide it into six tribes here and then six tribes there. And they would say, is the guilty from a member of one of these six tribes? And they'd shake the pottery. And if it came out, yes... Then they knew that they could eliminate those six tribes and then concentrate on these six. Then they would divide those six into three tribes and they'd do it again. They'd they'd, they'd shake the pottery and then depending on what rock came out, they'd know how to divide up further. They'd go through the tribes like that. Then they'd go through the clans and the families and then individuals in the families. And as they're doing this, I mean, what has Achan got to be thinking? We don't know. He doesn't say anything. He probably thought, well, they won't find out me and there's two million to one odds. But as the odds kept getting narrower and narrower and narrower, even identifying his family, there Achan remained silent. Even when it came down to just two men, Achan and another man, you would think that in that moment, Achan, they're sweating, about to Be found out. You think at that point he would repent. At that point he would confess. At that point he would plead for mercy and grace. And yet as you read through the chapter. You see none of that. It was only finally when the lot was cast. And all of Israel knew that it was Achan who had sinned. And Joshua stared him straight in the eye. It was only then that he confessed. You see in verse 20. Verse 20. It is true, this is what I've done. When I saw it, I coveted them, and I took them and I hid them in my tent. And then comes what I think are the most chilling words in the passage down in verse 23. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Now the stolen objects were not only placed before the people, but they were spread before the eyes of a holy God as all sin will be. Even if sin is not caught by a human in this life, we know for certain that nothing, nothing, nothing escapes the gaze of God. Now we need to take our sin seriously. All too often we underestimate our sin. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, what's so bad about what Achan did? Because in a A few verses later, we're going to see that Achan is condemned to death for this. You might be thinking, I'm sure it was bad. He stole some things. But see, God had warned the Israelites not to take any of it because it belonged to him. Achan disobeyed God. He ignored that warning. He didn't trust God's provision. He didn't abide by God's rules. He made his own rules, he went rogue. He became the God of his universe. It was utter rebellion. He had stolen from God himself. Now friends, sin is nothing short of cosmic treason. It's treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It's an act of supreme ingratitude towards one to whom we owe everything, the one who has given us life itself. Now have you ever considered the deeper implications of what you might think is just the slightest of sins. See, even in those slightest of sins, those things that we don't think are that big of a deal, those reasonable sins, those respectable sins, even in those moments, what we're saying is that, God, your law is no good. That my judgment is better than yours. That your authority doesn't apply to me in this area. That I am above your jurisdiction. That I have a right to do what I want to do no, all sin is a revolutionary act where we set ourselves in opposition to God. And in those moments, we tell the world that God is covetous, that God is ruthless, that God is not good, that God is not loving, that God does not provide, that God has withheld from his people. And that's what sin is. It's utter rebellion. But no one, certainly not Achan, had any idea of the ultimate cost of his sin. He underestimated his sin and probably thought that a little gold here, a little silver there could hardly make any difference. Well, that's what happens when we underestimate sin. It blinds us from the truth. Consider for a minute the gravity of your sin this past week. Perhaps you engaged in a crooked business deal to make a little more money. Or maybe you just fudged on the numbers a little bit or just kind of Cheated on a reimbursement. You thought, well, it's not a big deal. Just a little dishonesty. It's not going to hurt anyone. I need the money for rent anyway. Well, in that moment, you committed treason, not only against that person or against a company, but against God, because you took what was not rightfully yours. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that said God is not good, that God had held something back. You've told God that, that God has failed you. Or maybe you've indulged in a lifestyle of gluttony and you eat in such a way that reveals that your God is your stomach. See, in that moment that you're gluttonous, you are committing total rebellion against God. Not sure if you've ever thought about that before. But consider when you're engaged in gluttony, you're telling God that what he has provided for you, what he has orchestrated to be the necessary amount of food is not enough. And not only that, but in those moments you're telling God that God is not enough for me. That I need this food to satisfy my soul. Because you alone can't do that for me. You know, all sin, whether it's gluttony or stealing, whether it's pride or lust, all sin is cosmic rebellion. And in those moments you've made yourself God. And you take what you think is rightfully yours. Friends, are you underestimating your sin? Are you underestimating the power of sin in your life and in the lives of others? So your sin doesn't just affect your own soul, but the souls around you. It affects your husband. It affects your wife, your friends, your family, your church members, your fellow students and co-workers. It affects how we relate to others. It tempts others to follow suit. It brings God's judgment and it harms the church's witness. Friends, contemplate God's glory and how your sin affects others, and may that fuel your prayers for one another. And pray for your leaders. I stand up here as your pastor, frightened and terrified as I contemplate the power of sin in your life and also in my life. I know that I could easily at any moment be disqualified from ministry because of sin, And I know in that moment, my sin wouldn't just affect my own soul, but that it would affect my family. It would affect this entire church. It would affect our witness in this land. Now, church leaders are just as capable of falling into temptation as any other Christian. Oh, friends, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for the other elders. Pray for all of us that we as a church would not give in to the temptation of sin, that we would not give in to the temptations of the evil one in this place, that our witness as a church would not be broken, that we would indeed be a corporate display of God's glory to the world, that we would not underestimate our sin because we're often blinded and deceived by it. Incidentally, this is why church discipline is so necessary in the church. See, when you have someone rise up against God, if the church doesn't deal with it, it becomes a bitter fruit that will consume the entire church. We see that's what happened with Achan. We see that it consumed his entire family. It consumed the entire nation of Israel. Sin does that, which is why church discipline is the greatest act of love we can show an unrepentant sinner because we want them to repent. We want them to hope in God. That's why it's also the greatest act of love we can show the rest of the church because the purity of the church matters to all of us. Matters to our witness. And so friends, as a preventative measure to ensure that we don't walk down that road, take a deep look at your life. And not just at the symptoms or fruit of your sin, but to get rid of the sin, we need to look at the root Because right now, no matter how good we feel like we're doing, maybe we feel like we're kind of coasting along in our spiritual life. We all have weeds growing in our lawn. It doesn't matter what you're spraying on the lawn. Even if we're doing well, most of us have a weed here or a weed there. And you can get up the mower, you can mow your lawn, and then your yard looks great. But what happens a couple days later? Same weeds, they're back. And this time they've got friends with them. Now we can't just treat the fruit of our sin as if to simply say, I'm going to eradicate anger. I'm not going to yell anymore. No, if that's all we do, then as a church, we'll be packed with people working on symptoms rather than treating the disease. Now the testimony of Joshua 7 is that we can't kill weeds in our lives without digging to the root any more than we can treat cancer with vitamin pills. No, it requires radical surgery. To root out a problem is to attack the root, not the fruit. Sin works in us in subtle and insidious ways. We must become students of God. We must become students of ourselves. And we must become students of our situation if we're going to deal with sin. We have to study God. We have to study ourselves and study our situations. Jonathan Edwards once said, Resolved. Whenever I do any conspicuously evil action to trace it back till I come to the original cause and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all my might against the origin of it. Now friends, take time this week to study your life. If you're struggling with singleness, you may have a contentment problem and are bitter that God hasn't provided for you. If you're having a marriage problem, then perhaps you also are struggling with the contentment problem. Bitter that God hasn't provided a different spouse for you. Or bitter that God hasn't changed your spouse according to your own liking. If you're having a problem with your boss, you may be struggling with pride. It may not be the boss's problem at all. It may be the problem with your heart. That you're wrestling with pride because your boss doesn't treat you the way you think you deserve. Now check the root of your sin and don't ever underestimate it but that's not the only thing we see in this passage we also have a tendency to underestimate god's holiness that's the second point here in our passage is underestimating god's holiness now some who read these chapters of the defeat at ai some of it would say there're two reasons for the failure the first is manifestly because of self confidence They would say that the Israelites failed to conquer Ai because they were prideful. They only sent 3,000 troops because they thought that uh, they could handle it with little means. Well, second reason for failure that some say is because Israel failed to pray. They failed due to a neglect of prayer. Now, we'll see next week that both of these things come into play, that they are important. But they're not tied to the meaning of verses 1 and 26. No, verses 2 through 5 that talk about the defeat in Ai need to be interpreted in light of verse 1 of Achan's sin. No, the people of God failed because of God's judgment. Their overconfidence, if it was such, was the result of God's anger leading them to destruction, not the reason for defeat. No, they failed utterly and foremost because there was sin in the camp and God judged them. John Calvin discerned this. The great reformer said, When the 3,000 or thereabouts were repulsed, it was only a just recompense for their confidence and sloth. The Holy Spirit, however, declares that fewness of numbers was not the cause of this discomfiture and ought not to bear the blame of it. The true cause was the secret counsel of God who meant to show a sign of his anger but allowed the number to be small in order that the loss might be less serious. I think Calvin says rightly that the small numbers that went to war was actually God's grace, and that the people failed not because of terrible strategy. They failed not because of prayerlessness, though both are in play. The text says that God's people ultimately failed because they were under the just wrath of God. Sobering to consider. And yet we can understand that. Israel is defeated. And we can understand that Achan was stoned. It makes us a bit squeamish. But what about his family? I mean, if you studied this in your small groups this week and you read through the passage, you see that the entire family was killed for Achan's sin. Now, it may be that they were complicit with the theft, or at least they knew about it. After all, the goods were hidden in Achan's tent. Perhaps throughout the casting of lots, one, any of them could have come forward. But along with their father, the whole family remained silent while the silver, gold, and robe burned in their hearts, even as it lay buried in their tent. Well, we don't know if they knew or not. But in any event, we read this and we just cringe We read this and we think stoning, burning, and we just kind of squirm in our seats. We don't know what to think when we read that Achan's entire family was killed. But when we do this, however, we severely underestimate God's holiness. We think our sin is bad, but why does the punishment need to be so severe? And we're offended of God's wrath. We're even angered when we read those kinds of stories in the Bible. And so when we approach the story of Uzzah, it was the man who, it appears, innocently touched the Ark of the Covenant when he was commanded not to, and he was killed. Or when we approach Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, who offered a strange fire to the Lord, and were instantly killed for their sin, We find these things difficult to stomach because we underestimate the holiness of God. See, to be holy means that God always acts according to his perfect character. He's rooted in his absolute purity. He is utterly incapable of committing an unholy act. There's this consistency in God, this straightness about him. While we as human sin, there's a crookedness about us. There's always a straightness about God. And the question we ask after reading these accounts is, is God qualified for the job to function as the supreme judge of heaven and earth? If so, we would say that he is, then he ought to be just. That everything he does is perfect in justice. And we know that earthly judges can be corrupt. They take bribes. They show partiality. They make mistakes. But not so with God. There is no corruption with him. No one can bribe him. He refuses to show partiality. He never acts out of ignorance. No, he is perfectly holy. We see in Isaiah 6 and the words that we just sang, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. The angel there repeats himself three times, just in case we didn't get it the first time, that God is holy. And if God is holy, if he is holy other, if he was perfect, then he must punish any and all sin. Friends, if you struggle with this, know that you're in good company. And so did the patriarch Abraham. Abraham wrestled with the question of the just wrath of God. Remember back in Genesis, God announced that he was going to utterly and totally destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the story, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, was, was so intense that God said, I'm taking out both of those cities, completely burning it to the ground. And Abraham, he wrestled with this. He struggled. He thought men, women, and children live in that place. He was disturbed, concerned that the visitation of divine wrath on the cities would cause the innocent to perish. If God wiped out the cities in an act of judgment, Abraham feared that the judgment would be indiscriminate like a teacher who punishes the whole class for the sin of one student. And so Abraham asks, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now you see, that's a good question. It tells us that Abraham assumed that to kill the righteous along with the wicked was far removed from, From any possibility with God. And he was right. There was never, ever, ever a remote possibility that God could kill innocent people along with the unrighteous. For God to do that would cause him to cease to be holy. He would stop being God in that moment. And so God was willing to bend over backwards for Abraham. Abraham says, God, God, I can find 50 people And God says, if you find 50 people, then I'll spare the city, 40, 30, 20. At the end, Abraham, if you can find 10 people, 10 innocent people in the cities of Sodom and in the cities of Gomorrah, then I will not destroy those cities. The implication from the text is that God would have spared the cities if Abraham could provide even one man, woman, or child who was innocent. Well, what ended up happening to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were, they were completely destroyed. But no innocent people perished. Because there were no innocent people. Romans 3 says there's none righteous, not, not one. So when God enacts the death penalty, is he, is he unjust? By no means. Remember that God voluntarily created us. That he gave us the highest privilege as image bearers. No, we're not caterpillars. We're not coyotes. We're people. We are image bearers of the holy and majestic king of the cosmos. And in our sin, we as image bearers have utterly rejected God in our cosmic rebellion. No, God's justice is perfect. And we underestimate his holiness when we think God is unjust. Now, when we cringe at God's justice, our assumption is that God wiped out innocent people. But that's just the problem. There were no innocent people in Achan's family. There were no innocent people in the land of Canaan that was destroyed. And friends, there are no innocent people in this room this morning. Now, when we struggle with this, we underestimate God's holiness. The question is not why... Does God punish sin? But why does He permit ongoing human rebellion to continue? So the question we ask is not, why isn't everyone saved? The question we have to ask is, oh Lord, why is anyone saved? What prince, what king, what ruler would display so much patience with a continually rebellious populace? No one. No one except our God. God is not like an earthly ruler. He doesn't always act with wrath. He also acts with mercy. And we severely underestimate this as well. That's the third point if you're taking notes. We underestimate our sin. We underestimate God's holiness. But we also underestimate God's mercy. Now it's said by some that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. That he's a mean God. You know, there's one ancient heretic named Marcion that actually said the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament can't be the same person, because the God of the Old Testament is wrathful, he's vengeful, he's angry. The God of the New Testament is a God of love, a God of kindness and mercy. But this simply isn't true. God is always and consistently a God of wrath and justice and a God of mercy and grace. Now, the Old Testament is actually a story of a merciful God, isn't he? So even going through this text and other texts, we see that God is merciful and patient with a stiff-necked, obstinate people. I mean, God heard the groans in the wilderness, and yet he brought them across dry ground in the River Jordan. He he brought them across the Red Sea, and though they worshipped a golden calf, he didn't leave them. Or forsake them. Now, even in our passage this morning, it's full of mercy. If you take time this afternoon to read the passage for yourself when you go through Joshua chapter 8, you'll see that God, even after the sin, gives the city of Ai to the people of God. He gave them Ai, and then, unlike Jericho, and even after Achan's sin, God permits Israel to keep plunder and livestock from Ai. I mean, this is just incredible. Even in the sin of covetousness, of stealing, God opens the doors in Ai and gives them probably beyond what they need. I mean, how needless Achan's covetousness was. Now, when Yahweh's, when God's priority is recognized and satisfied, he gives to his people. God will always take care of us. I was reading to our three kids in our regular morning devotional times this past week some stories about Jesus in the Gospels. And we talked about how Jesus always provides for us. We were reading through some of his teaching, and I asked him some questions like I always do, and I said, Eliza. Said, Eliza, who closed the lilies of the field? And she yelled out rather excitedly, Jesus. Then I asked Nora, Nora, Who feeds the birds of the air? Then she yelled, Jesus. And then asked little Judson, Judson, who takes care of us? And he yelled, I'm assuming that was Jesus, but I don't know. I'm hoping so. And see, Nora and her cute little three-year-old voice likes to speak for Judson. So she spoke up and said, Jesus for Judson. Now, I know that my kids are mostly conditioned by me to answer Jesus for most of my questions. I understand that. They've gotten good at yelling Jesus, and then I cheer with them. And so I understand that full comprehension might not quite be there yet. But as I went through my day later on, feeling discouraged, feeling uh, discouraged and struggling for contentment as I sat in my office, I remembered back to the morning, and I remember those cheers, those loud yells of my kids reminding me that Jesus always provides for us, that he always takes care of us. Not only that, he provides forgiveness for us. In Joshua 8, 30-35, as the Israelites celebrate covenant reaffirmation, God reaffirms to them at the end of the passage that he's going to give them the land. That he offers forgiveness. And his forgiveness is most clearly seen to us today in the most brutal act of divine vengeance ever recorded in Scripture. See, Marcion, the heretic, was wrong. If you want to see the greatest display of God's wrath and mercy, you find it both in reading the Old and the New Testaments. Because the most violent expression of God's wrath is actually in the Gospels. When we look at the cross, if a person ever had room to complain of injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross Here's where our astonishment should be focused. If we have cause for moral outrage at what we see in the Bible, let it be directed at Golgotha because it was there that God poured out his wrath. He poured out his judgment on Christ who became obscene to him. Christ was cursed for our sin which he bore upon himself. He took what justice demanded. And we so easily forget the magnitude of Christ's death and resurrection. We too easily forget that he took the death that we deserved and that in his mercy we were spared. And so we underestimate God's mercy. Even the picture of judgment at the end of our passage is mercy towards us. Look at the end of chapter 8. At the end of all the battles, the king of Ai is captured and he's hanging on a tree. Look at verse 29. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Now, Until evening, the king's body hung on a tree because it was accursed of God. It was a reminder to all of God's judgment yet in God's kindness for them and for us, this points us to still another picture of his mercy. Because hundreds of years later, another king would hang on a tree. This time it would not be any ordinary king, but it would be the king of the Jews who would hang on this tree. And as Galatians 3 tells us, this king became a curse For us, he hung on this tree until the evening, taking our curse, taking our punishment upon himself. And this king willingly hung on that tree, cursed so that we might never be cursed, but instead saved from our sin. Oh friends, how could we meditate on that picture and ever underestimate the mercy of God again? Who can turn the valley of Acor, where Achan and his family died into a door of hope? We certainly can't do it, but there's one who does Jesus. He has done it by taking trouble upon himself. He was troubled for us. He went down into that dark valley of judgment, dying in our place, in his own valley of Acor, in order that he may raise us up in the hope by his resurrection. And when you trust in Jesus, you get a stunning reversal. I mean, have you noticed that we've witnessed the stunning reversal of the fates of Achan the Israelite today and two weeks ago of Rahab the Canaanite? I mean, Achan was the heir to the renowned family line of Jesus, and yet he suffers the fate of Canaanite Jericho While Rahab, as Canaanite as they come, escapes it. I mean, Rahab, the ultimate outsider, becomes an insider in Israel by submitting to God's authority. While Achan, the exemplary insider, becomes an outsider by rejecting it. Achan makes himself a Canaanite while Rahab makes herself an Israelite. So the point is not your birth but your belief. The point is not who your parents are, but your profession. Now you're not born a Christian and you don't have to stay a non-Christian if you're born into a non-Christian family. No, the point is your belief. You too can switch places like Rahab because Jesus in his incredible mercy switched places with you. Trusting in this good news will change you. Don't underestimate God's mercy. As a Christian, we don't get what we deserve. And it is this very truth that we meditate on this morning as we approach the Lord's table. This is one of the reasons we have communion as the people of God. It's to contemplate the mercy we have received by seeing our death placed on Christ. And we are to examine our lives in light of this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven 27-29 gives us instruction and warning and says, That whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, the Bible urges you to let the bread and let the cup pass you by. We'd ask instead that you take some time to consider Christ's sacrifice on the cross to bring salvation to sinners. You may actually be sitting here and listening to this, realizing that you're in such deep sin. there's no hope for you to be good enough to achieve God's love, to achieve his grace. And friend, you would be absolutely right. On your own, you can't. That's why Christ died. For if we could earn salvation on our own, then Christ's death would be in vain. But it wasn't. It was our only solution. It is our only way for forgiveness. To accept this sacrifice on our behalf. None of us can fight sin on our own and cleanse our hearts from sin. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, likened the heart to a vast reservoir out of which flow many water sources. Spurgeon showed us that if a reservoir is poisoned, only cleansing the water would do. Changing the pipes wouldn't fix the problem. Replacing the man who regulated the thing wouldn't fix the problem. Fixing and changing the engine wouldn't fix the water. You have to cleanse the water itself. Friend, the only way to change a person is to cleanse your heart. Friend, come to Christ today and he will give you a new one. Believe in him today to save you. If you're a believer here and you're involved in unrepentance and something that you're still hanging on to, something you haven't asked for forgiveness for, something you haven't stopped, just pause for a minute today. Just stop. Let the bread and the cup pass you by and repent of your sin Friend, there's no better thing for you to do today than to cut off the sin that so easily entangles you. And for the rest of us, take some time this morning to examine your heart and evaluate the sin you're struggling with. Ask yourself, what is it that my heart clings to and relies upon? Is there something besides God that I'm clinging to for my ultimate security? There may be a lot of things, but why don't you start with one today? Identify an area that you can begin to work on now. Because as one who goes into a forest to chop down trees, you don't take out all the trees in the forest at one time, but you take them out one by one. Friend, Do the same today. Check your heart. Take one area of sin today. Begin working on it. Search out the root. Fight it with prayer and get help from another Christian brother or sister. May that be our exhortation for all of us today and this week. Search our hearts for one area to work on and find a friend to talk it over. Bring it out into the community and get help. Let's work together. Well, before we proceed with communion, let's take some time now to reflect on this and silently confess before the Lord any sin in our midst.